is good. How many love Jesus? Say amen. Isn't it wonderful to be in the presence of the Lord? Praise God. He is good and worthy to be praised. Amen. Our God is alive and he answers by fire. Praise God. He is the, the real God. Amen. All the other gods are just idols. The Lord is my God. And I will proclaim his praise all my days. Amen. I'm going to continue in the series of the 12 lessons that I learned in 12 years of ministry. We'll go back into Zechariah. Thank you, Lord willing. Uh, next week. I know that we stopped at 7, but I'm going to go over them quickly, and then I will go again from 7. So, brother, I'm just going to ask you to come and join me if you can, Adolfo, whenever you get done. I know you do so much back there. So we learned that the first lesson is everything in the kingdom of God starts small. That's where I realized I spent the majority of my time when I ended up listening to the message. I hope that that encouraged you. That we have to do things in excellence. That if we want to have a, a, a lasting ministry, if we want to have longevity, we have to do things in excellence, no matter what the cost is. Lesson number two, the kingdom of God is built with relationships. No matter how many times I've messed up in relationships, I've always tried to go back and restore them because I've realized over the years that without relationships, I can't go to the next level. Because everything I need is tied to somebody. The Bible says, Given it shall be given to you, pressed down, shaken together, and angels shall pour into your bosom. Is that what it says? And the Holy Spirit shall pour into you. Know? It says, Given it shall be given to you, pressed down, shaken together, and men will give back unto you, poured into your bosom. As the King James says. So what happens is, is that God uses people. So everything you need is, is connected to somebody. Think about that. You need a million dollars. Somebody has it right now. You need a calling, uh, I mean, a place to fulfill your calling. Somebody has that location right now. A ministry has a door open for you, and a person is there waiting to talk to you. Everything you need is connected to somebody. God does not give you gifts through angels. God does not give you the things through just the Holy Spirit tangibly coming into this world. The Holy Spirit and angels and God use people. They use people. Now, the gifts of the Spirit obviously come from the Holy Spirit. But I'm saying everything you need in ministry is going to be tied to somebody. And that's where a relationship comes in. If you want to go to India, you're going to need to know somebody in India. You're going to need to know how to get to India. Once you get there, you're going to need to know how to operate in India. You're going to need people to work with you in India. You get it. It's always connected to people. And that's why relationships are so important. Lesson number three, fear is an emotion, not a fact. That means that when you go through things in life and you feel afraid, that don't mean nothing. Look at your neighbor say, it don't mean nothing. <laughs> it don't mean nothing. It is that, well, so what? I'm afraid. What's the deal? What's next? Okay, let's go. Let's go. It don't matter. I'm afraid. You're afraid. Okay, let's go. We got that cleared up. You're afraid. I feel like I'm going to die. You feel like you're going to die. Let's give it to Jesus. Let's go. What's the worst that can happen? We're going to die and be with Jesus. Shucks. I'm in heaven now. Come on. That's what I've learned is that fear is always an emotion. It's just an emotion, something that tries to tell you you can't and you shouldn't and, and something's not right. And every time that I've listened to fear, I've suffered. Every time that I stayed home from going witnessing, when I should have gone witnessing out of fear, I suffered. Every time I didn't 
do something or tell somebody something out of fear, I suffered. Every time I did it, even though I was afraid, as Paul said, in fear and trembling, every time I've done something afraid, it's always been better than I ever imagined. And God has always given me strength. And so that's the lesson. Never let the, the emotion of fear, Davi, dictate your life because fear is just going to set you back. It's an emotion. Just tell yourself, it's an emotion. The fact is God is with me. Amen? Amen. Lesson number four that I learned is that worship is the most effective prayer. And, and so often, you know, in Bible colleges and settings like this, we want to pray hours and we want to get alone with God. And sometimes we get discouraged when we don't. And I think a godly discipline of at least an hour a day with the Lord in His presence is what we should all be doing just as a standard. But I want to tell you the most effective way to do that to me is worshiping Him, loving Him. Because presenting your need, your daily bread before the Lord, give us today our daily bread, presenting that before God takes two seconds. If you spend all of your time talking about your daily bread and not hallowing His name, you're going to have a pretty dull prayer life. And you'll sometimes come more depressed out of your prayer time than the way you came in. How many of you have ever had worry time instead of prayer time? You're just worrying in the presence of the Lord. You're just, you know, going over those things in your head over and over. God, what am I going to do? God, how is this going to work out? That ain't how you pray. Just say, Lord, you know what I need? You say the need, God, you know the situation. This has to be worked out. I ask you to take care of it. Now, here I am. You know, um, here we are, here we are. I don't even know the rest of the song. It's all for you. That's the first part. Praise God. I remember it. Just put on a worship album. Amen. In his presence is the fullness of joy. This is an old Chancellor No song. In his presence is the fullness of joy. That's what we used to say. Can you just imagine that? In his presence is the fullness of joy. Sing that song to the Lord. Make it up. Make your own melody up. Because if you get in his presence, there's the fullness of joy. Amen? That's lesson number four that I learned. Lesson number five was that visions and dreams are the language of God. That when you want to communicate with God, you're talking in prayer. Lord, do this. Lord, I'm asking you to do this. But when he wants to communicate with you, he has to put it in 3D and have you experience it, smell the smoke of the jungle, hear the breeze of the ocean come by. He has to give it to you in a dream because it's so big. If he just says to you, I'm sending you, if he just says, I'm sending you to Africa, that's one thing. It's another thing if you dream you're in Africa and you're, and you're witnessing to the brother and you can hear the, the sound of the jungle. You give it, I'm saying, that's what God gives is dreams. And visions. Sometimes you'll just be sitting in class and this is not a daydream or you falling asleep, but you'll just see something in the spirit and you'll just say, man, that's where I want to go one day. That's where I'm going to be. I remember after preaching in the projects one day, I was coming down off the steps, just just normal. I was on this platform. I got done preaching. I was just coming down. And right when I started coming down, everything around me became a stadium. Everything around, I was in a stadium and God said, you're going to preach to the multitudes one day. That's what, I just saw it. I was just, I was preaching to like four people, and as I was stepping down, it was just like I was stepping down, like you see a platform in a stadium, and God said, that's what you're going to do. Don't get discouraged. Just, just an instant, because God just had to show me what was up, because that's his language, amen? And then your imaginations, and then your, your heart is communicating back to God in that same way. That's why he says he'll even do beyond your imaginations. Go above and beyond that in Ephesians, the Bible says. A lesson, a lesson six is spiritual gifts are not earned. They're given as gifts. 
No matter how many times I've gotten around people that want to tell me if I pray more, fast more, do more, I'll see more, I've never even seen that displayed in their life. I always see the measure of faith as a correlation to the measure of spiritual gifting. It's never all the do-diddles. It's just, do you believe? I was telling the story to the 201 class on Sunday morning, uh, Sunday school yesterday, and it was the story of this guy was like a Baptist minister. He was overseas in the jungle. He was preaching the, the story of the demon-possessed man at the tombs who had cut himself to the villagers. He was, you know, just telling them the story. A guy got up and goes, hey, I know somebody like that right down the road. Let's go get him. So they all just ran down there, and they just got dude that they had tied up. That was like their insane asylum. They went and found him. They tied him up over there because he was crazy, and they brought him in front of the pastor. And they're like, let's cast out the demon. And they all just started praying, cast out the demon, and the Baptist became Baptocostal. And it was a testimony of just how simple the faith is, you know, just People were hearing it for the first time. Oh, God casts out demons. Well, there's a guy right there that has demons. Let's just cast it out. I was reading the story uh, of Smith Wigglesworth. Same thing. Smith Wigglesworth was not in some ultimate prayer and fasting and 40-day spiritual journey with the Lord. He just started seeing people sick. He went and prayed for them. He had faith. They got healed. Now, does prayer and fasting and these different tools help us? grow in our faith and, and do things. Yes, they, they definitely can, but they're not the, the, the source of it. The source is just faith. I remember meeting Carlos Nicandia, and I said, how much do you pray a day? I mean, I'm seeing more here than I've ever seen in my whole life when I was in his meetings. And I said, how much do you pray a day? And, and then the, the interpreter said, he's not going to understand that. They don't think like you, like, you know, like he has a certain time of prayer. And I said, but ask him. And then, you know, I see him waving his hands around as he's speaking in Spanish. And then the, the interpreter says, he, he, he's telling you, I pray on the airplane. I pray, prayed in the car here. I pray in my hotel. He says, I don't have a set time of prayer. I pray wherever I go. So then I tried to, like, pin him down even more. I said, I said, I've been to American meetings and I've been to all these other meetings, but I've never seen them do what you're doing. What's the difference? Because I know they pray. I mean, I've been to Brownsville. I've been to these other places. And I've seen some of the miracles, but not all the things that I'm seeing here. And I said, I know they pray. I mean, they're praying hours like you, I mean, or, you know, wherever they go. And he said, Mark 16, these signs shall follow them that believe. He said, I believe. That's what he said. That's what the man said back to me. I believe. That's all I, I believe. I believe God's going to do it. You look at Judas and the 12 and all of them. They weren't walking around having like eight hours of prayer time. They saw Jesus do it so much that it was a natural reaction. You see somebody sit, get up in Jesus' name. They weren't sitting there begging them, having a five-hour prayer meeting. Just get up. You're healed. Walk. Run. Do what you couldn't do before. God is here. Now, bam, shikaboomba, receive. So if you want to go on a spiritual journey to find the outer regions of the third heavens, go for it. You, you can do that. Just don't expect to come back with more spiritual treasures, okay? Because spiritual treasures, the gifts, are gifts. God gives them as gifts. And all of that stuff is just for you and the Lord to get closer. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Lesson number seven, where we left off, and I spoke a little bit about it, but I uh, want to start here today, is bitterness is a disease only cured by forgiveness. Ephesians 4, 31. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Something that I've realized over the years is that people will make me bitter. People will make me bitter if I allow them to. You see, you have the choice if you allow somebody to make you bitter. You don't have the choice if somebody hurts you. I've heard people say, 
Well, you can guard yourself from being hurt. I think at times you can guard yourself from being hurt, but I'm just telling you sometimes just people hurt you. There's just no way you can just be so protective and then you don't get hurt. It's like if you don't open your heart to a place where it could get hurt, then you're not really loving people. You know, so if you're like so protective, you know, you don't let anybody into your house when you're ministering to them. You don't ever do anything outside of the church. You just shake hands and get all political with people like, hey, God bless you. Thank you for coming. And I'll see you next week. Like if you live a life like that, you're like, you're superficial. You're fake, you know. But if you really love people and you really open your heart to people, they're going to hurt you. That's the bottom line. You're not going to get out of being hurt. But bitterness is a choice. And so the difference is, is when you're hurt, you say, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. And that's my favorite thing to say with Nancy. We say it all the time. We said it this week. We'll say it next week. We'll say it for the rest of our life. And that is, they just don't know no better. That's what we say, Josh. We, we tell them. We just say, you know what? They hurt us. They did this to us. Do you know why? Because they just don't know no better. That's it. Even if they intentionally meant to hurt us, and that's they're like, no, I do know better. Excuse me. If they're like, yes, I do know better, and I really meant to do that. What I still say is, if you knew how that looked in the spiritual realm, that you were hanging out with demons, and that you were putting a curse on yourself, you wouldn't have done that. So really, you still don't know no better. You get what I'm saying? You don't know no better. You don't know that you and Beelzebub were hanging out, coming up with that concoction. You know what I'm saying? You and the Lord of the Flies. That was, that was what you were doing. You and old Slewfoot, the devil. We're hanging out, and that's what you came up with. You don't know no better. And I forgive you because you don't know no better. That's it. Now, if you don't forgive, what does that hurt become? You can look at it as different examples. It can become a hook inside of you, and that hook begins to pull at you every single day. You can also look at it as, a, as like quicksand. The more you step in it and the more you get in it, the more deeper you get and the more you try to like do things in it, like act out of bitterness, you try to get revenge, it's just you sink deeper and deeper. A, a way that I like to look at it is that you then put on the record of that hurt. So it's like this person did this to me because of this reason. And then that's that little sentence. And then you push play and it will go over and loop and loop and loop and like a broken record in your head. And we have approximately 50,000 thoughts a day in our brain and you'll think 20, 30, 40% of your thoughts in one day on that. And that's like 20, 30,000 thoughts, my friend. You'll have so many thousands of thoughts every day. This person did this to me. I can't believe how they did it. So it's a disease. It spreads. And here's another way to look at it. It's like cancer. It's like something that comes into your body. And then if you don't check it, it will start to take over other parts. And, and it can affect your marriage. It can affect your family. It can affect the way you treat other people. For example, let's say... Like, um, there's Europeans in Chicago that have come to this church and they've heard us, right? Because sometimes they don't understand the English language. They have a little bit of a coarse nature about themselves. And so sometimes us dealing with people that are from Poland, like, I am Polish. These are my people, have caused us some conflict in being in the church, you know? Well, if I now see a Polish person come in, like Monica, and I say, I'm not going to trust her. I'm not going to let her get into my life because Polish people have acted crazy up in this church. How many know that I have now acted out of bitterness? It's a cancer. It now spread from the situation between me and this person, and it's now affected this person. How many know it can make you racist? It can make you, uh, you know, against men or against women. A woman can be hurt in a relationship, and then what does she say? I hate all men. 
You see, you can, you can bring down whole races of people out of bitterness. One person in a race could do something and bring it all down. And you can stereotype people. Somebody could say, well, I was in youth ministry, and these youth never lived for the Lord. They backslid. So youth don't know how to serve God. And I've heard youth pastors say that. I've heard youth pastors say, I don't want to work with the youth anymore because the youth don't know how to commit. And I've heard adult, a pastor said, as I told you before, they said pastoring would be great if not for the people. And I'm telling you, I've heard pastors say that. And, and Sue Ellen, I've heard them tell me that if they had a choice, that they would pastor, but they would pastor people only as so far as they can see them, and they would never trust them farther than they can throw them. And I, I'm t- just like people would say it in the world. Why? Because it's all a lot of bitterness. And I've heard people, and then you'll see, watch this, not just a race, not just a sex, not just an age group. I've watched people come out of the ministry and say, the church can't be helped anymore. The whole body of Christ. And you better be careful, <clears throat> excuse me, when you start dealing with the whole body of Christ like that. God hates racism. God hates sexism. God hates ageism. God hates all of that. It's all from the devil. It's all a lie. And all of these other things. But I'm telling you, when you mess with the body of Christ, you're in trouble. When you start saying, these people, these people, when Moses started talking like that, God got upset with them. When he struck the rock out of anger, remember when Moses struck the rock out of anger? God said, because of that, you're not going to the promised land. You never have a right to abuse God's people. That's something, excuse me, that I've learned. By the way, my uh, 58 Chevy engine right here, it's just a little little wore out. You know what I'm saying? So just if you see me oiling her up, you know, just take your time with her today, okay, amen? Just don't uh, think I'm being a scary old man. <laughs> Turn with me to the lesson. I'm like one step away from that, though. But it's like I'm mocking, but really like the next, as the sermon goes on, I'm like, okay, go to lesson eight. Or, uh, excuse me, Matthew 6, 24. I keep wanting to call these lessons chapters. Maybe chapters of a book. Hallelujah. Oh, praise the Lord. Material things never satisfy only God. Now, if you have any bit of sense of the kingdom of God, obviously you're going to say, I got that. That's pretty easy. But why was that a lesson that I had to learn? That was a lesson that I had to learn because it's easy to say material things don't satisfy when you don't have material things. (laughs) So it's easy when you're in Bible college and you're living on the ramen noodle diet and you're driving your car that has to be pushed probably half the amount of time it can drive by itself or, you know, you're hanging out with your friends and and all of them are broke, busted, and disgusted in some way or fashion because they haven't showered in a long time. Okay, that's one thing. But the, the when I learned this lesson was when I started to get things. When things started to come into my life, and I heard uh, Dr. Ophelia talking about most ministers don't know how to handle success. And that is so true. I'm telling you, success is a harder temptation, excuse me, than trials and suffering. Because trials and suffering, you're like, 
you got something to fight for. You're like, man, I'm going to make it out of this. I'm going to get through this. You know, I'm going to stay faithful to God. It's like jailhouse religion. You know, it's like, come on, I ain't got nobody else to trust him but God. Everybody's left me. I'm living for God. I'm going through this. Jesus, you're my only hope. You only got four people in the youth group. You're like, Jesus, we're going to worship you no matter what. Dude, I'm telling you. But all of a sudden, you get a thousand people in the youth group. It's hard to come with that same passion. Because you'll walk into the youth group. And you'll just be like, man, look at all these youth. Man, look at all thousand youth right here. You have your worship band. You have all this going on. And your tendency will just be to come up and just put on a show. Because, man, you made it. Why, why press in during the prayer time now? Why preach a rebuking message now? Why, why fight through something now? Man, why pray during the week? Man, you already got it. And then you look at material things, you know, like you're praying for prosperity and blessing. But what do you do when you wake up and you're in a beautiful house? What do you do when you have more cars and you can fit in your garage? What do you do when all your bills have been paid? See, that's what happened in my life. That's exactly what happened in my life. I started off with nothing. And I'm not saying I'm a billionaire. I'm just saying I have more than I ever thought I would have. And then how does that work out? And this is what happened in my life. It started off in Bible college, like, Lord, I'll, I'll die for you, you know. And I had heard that David Livingston, you know, the great missionary to Africa, he asked his wife the day he met her, you know, will you move with me to Africa? And so whenever I would go out with a girl and date, whatever, it's like, will you go with me to Africa, you know. So I was like this awesome guy, you know, that was just, I'll do anything. Well, you know, time goes on. Now Nancy and I have a beautiful house. I have, you know, two children. You know, the, the second one, Hannah, was just born to us uh, March 12th, a couple days ago. And, and all of this stuff is in my life. And then now God is like, will you go to Pakistan? Well, what's the first thing that comes into my mind? I can die in Pakistan. I die. No more SUM cohort. No more <clears throat> a Metro Praise Church. No more beautiful home. No more children. There it is. And so... The thing that got into my life was, am I going to let the treasures of this world now take the place of the God who gave me the treasures? And I'm telling you, you have to deal with that. Because like right now, a lot of you guys are single, and you're just like, I'll serve God wherever and whenever. But what happens if your wife is afraid to move where God calls you to move? I've seen people take ministry jobs in places they weren't supposed to go just because it was better, quote unquote, for their family. Seriously. You know, I always think about that. There's 6 billion people in the world, right? And 39 of the major cities of the world, I mean of America, house like 80% of our population. Why is it God's calling everybody to the suburbs? Does God not know what's going on? Why are all the preachers going to the suburbs? I, I don't get it. Do I need to go and pray a little bit more and ask God, like, God, help me understand why all my friends who graduated Bible college are working out somewhere in the suburbs of these rural, rural areas or outside of major cities like 45 minutes away. God, help me understand the plan there. Is it like uh, we're like Iraq shooting little scud missiles like we're way far away? Like, No, God is looking for people that want to go hand-to-hand combat. God is looking for people who want to get dirty. Look at your neighbor and say, you better get dirty. Now look at your other neighbor and say, I ain't just talking dirty. I'm talking dirty, dirty, dirty. (laughs) You've got to get your nails dirty. You've got to crawl in that mud and dirt and everything. 
You have got to get dirty. And I'm not saying you have to live in poverty on Barely Get Along Street next to Grumble Avenue your whole life. That's where I live, right here. No, you don't have to live there your whole life. I mean, you can be blessed, but you have to understand those things will never satisfy. At the end of the day, if you begin to say, I'm so satisfied because I have a big church, a great family, and a nice house, you're empty inside. Because if you're satisfied, you are like anemic or something because you are eating like a little little crumb. You've forgotten what it was like to be hungry. You forgot what it was like to go to Fogo de Chow, the Brazilian steakhouse, all you could eat filet mignon wrapped in bacon. You forgot what that was like to sit at the Lord's table and have you have him bless you. So my 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 lesson is that I learned even just recently, like recently, is it's all God's. And it no more satisfies being in a broke, busted, and disgusted house than being in a nice house. It doesn't touch that part of you. And the way I would describe it is if you look at your soul and there's things, in, and you look at your soul like a glass, and there's things that, um, well, let's not look at it like a glass. Let's, let's look at it like, um, I want to start from something that comes from the top. Okay, one of my pet peeves is giving you examples that when I listen to my sermons, uh, functional example. And another one of my pet peeves is has to stop and think about one of those examples. So I've just caught myself in a conundrum and I'll come up with it. I want you to think about your soul. Think of it as if it was a glass. Let's go back to the glass example. And now go to the to the deep, the bottom the, is, is not the good thing. This is the surface level. This is the, the barely get along stuff. Okay. So if I started to pour a glass of milk for you, and I only gave you this much, it would be at the bottom. Are you with me? And if I gave it to you, it wouldn't satisfy. Okay? Now watch. At that glass, let's say you began to make measurements. Okay? You say one ounce, two ounce, three ounce, four ounce, five ounce. Okay? At the bottom where it says one ounce, this is the satisfaction that you'll get from God when you know that all your bills are paid. Okay? Then there's the next level, the satisfaction you get from God when things in your family work out. Then there's the next level, the satisfaction from God when things in your ministry are going well. And then there's the satisfaction from God when uh, you're doing new things and you're experimenting and God is blessing you. Then there's the satisfaction from God in his presence. Okay? Now watch. When you become a Christian, God starts pouring that in, right? And he starts working things out in your life. You used to be on drugs. You used to be tore up from the floor up like how I was. And just not getting high and living for God, that's like a tremendous blessing, right? And just the fact that your family doesn't want to kick you out or that your family's getting along, it's great. Or that your husband and wife, you guys don't fight. Okay, and a lot of people, they come to church because they say, I just want God to fix my family. I just want God to do something in me. Are you understanding what I'm saying? And they'll be satisfied with that. They'll say, I'm satisfied with that. But ultimately, it's still a material thing. It's still your family. One day your family's going to die. You won't have them forever. And your eternal soul will live on beyond your family. Are you with me? And then the next thing is, is ministry. And you can get in the point where you say, you know what, if I have 100 people, if I preach two times on Sunday, if, if I go overseas, then this will satisfy me. 
And for a time when you first get saved, or first get in the ministry rather, you'll start to do great things. And those things will kind of like, they'll satisfy you a little bit. Man, I got to preach. Did you hear me preach? I remember coming to Bible college with like my first preaching tape. And I had to give like all my fellow students that tape. I'm like, listen to it. I can preach. Just wanted to let you guys know I can preach. Here's the tape. Listen to it. I would drive around in my car, seriously. I would drive around in my car just be like, hey, you want to hear something? Boop. Then it would be like me preaching. Okay? And then you keep going. Well, trying new things. Okay, well, I've been in ministry for five years, and I'm going to try a crossover ministry, or I'm going to try a young adult ministry. I'm going to try, uh, you know, uh, after-school program. And it satisfies a little bit. But listen to me. The greatest depth, the greatest amount that you'll need every day to have a full cup is just being satisfied with who he is. And the deception is, and, and, and I, I'm not saying that you're going to hell, but I'm telling you, the deception is in ministry that you stop somewhere along that way. And you'll go to a pastor's house, you'll be in ministry, and, and you'll see somebody, or you'll see it in yourself, and you'll say, as long as my family's taken care of and the ministry's doing okay, my cup is full. As long as I have a thousand people, my cup is full. As long as I've done these things, my cup is full. And the way they will deceive you is that you will think to yourself, it is all for God. So in your mind, you're not the sinner you used to be, and you're not wasting your time. You're actually giving things to God. But God is wanting, to you, wanting you to be filled with Him. God is wanting you to get beyond those things. That you just look at it as satisfaction in my family, satisfaction in my ministry, satisfaction in my personal growth. God is saying, the greatest satisfaction has to be in me. Now, another way of looking at it was what Jonathan Edwards defined as seeking the glory of God. That your total heart and passion would be for God's glory. That nothing would take the place of God's glory. That you would pursue the glory of God beyond anything in your life. That it's all for the glory of God. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And I believe you can put anything in there. You can't serve God and ministry. You say, well, I can still do ministry and serve God. Yes, but you cannot put ministry on the same level as you put God. You cannot define your relationship with God based on your ministerial success. You cannot look at your ministry and say, because the ministry is good, I'm good with God. That doesn't mean it. That is not true. I've seen people where their ministries were awesome, but they were terrible with God. And at the same time, I've seen people who are awesome with God and their ministries all falling apart because there are just things that are out of their hands that they have no control over. Maybe they came and took a church. I knew of a great man of God that came and took a church of 3,000 people. The founding pastor had built it from zero to 3,000 people. And he asked this awesome man of God, Caesar, this man was like in his 50s, I mean awesome man of God, to come to the church excuse me, and take the ministry to the next level, he was going to retire. Well, as this awesome man of God came, the ministry began to explode, man. I mean, it went from 3,000 and it's just grown, 4,000, whatever. I mean, tons of people are coming. Well, guess what happens? The old man gets jealous. He comes out of retirement, takes back the position, 
and kicks the man and his family out. How many know that's a nightmare in ministry? But how many know that had nothing to do with that man's personal walk? You see, his wife began to go into depression. And praise God, she got set free from it. But she went into depression. She could not figure it out. And if you let it get to you, it will depress you. Ministry will depress you at times. So you can't serve God in ministry. You have got to be able to say, I came here to serve God. And if they don't want me to serve God anymore, click clat on my boots, kick off the dust, I'm going to the next one. I don't get an amen like that. I said, I'm going to the next one. You see, because things don't satisfy. Only God does. So my friends, don't let the blessings of God take you away from the presence of God. As Adam was saying, we're seeking God's face, not his hands. We want God. God alone satisfies. And when you have that, everything else will work out. Amen? Lesson 9. Character matters over giftings. Proverbs 11.3. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. I've told you so many stories about people falling into ministry, and I try to keep the examples fresh when I'm talking to you guys in SUM. So I'm going to give you guys an example that you haven't heard before. When I first started out in ministry, there was a young man that was called of God, just like I was called of God. And he was tremendously gifted, but he also had the desire of homosexuality. And despite his great gifts homosexuality took him out the ministry. And then I remember another situation that there was a church that I was going to and the youth pastor was tremendously gifted. He could sing. He could lead worship. He could bless us. But he also had an issue with drinking. I remember another situation where there was a youth pastor that I thought was a tremendous leader. I didn't know him personally, but I knew of him. And he had a relationship with a youth leader while he was married. My friends, you'll see it all throughout your life. People that are tremendously gifted. Whether it's a peer, somebody you look up to, or somebody in ministry. And you'll see that God's gifts are without reproach. God doesn't take the gifts away. You'll see them doing awesome things, but you'll begin to see their character fall apart. Listen to me, Dobby. The most important thing you need to know is the integrity of the upright guides them. Somebody say integrity. I love the way Bill Hybels defined integrity. He said integrity is the person you are when no one is looking. Who you are when no one is looking. Do you eat your toenails when no one is looking? Then that's who you are. No, I'm kidding. Who are you when nobody is looking? Because if you change who you are when you get around people from the person you are when nobody's looking, you eventually will be destroyed. One of the things now that I tremble at doing, which I used to love to do, when I would meet people that were kind of famous in, in the Christian world, I would ask them about the other famous people in the Christian world, like my favorite preachers on TV or the books that I've read. And I would always ask them about how is this person, what's this person like? 
And it got to the point where now I don't even ask that question anymore. And I don't know if it's jealousy. I don't know. But every time I talk about somebody that's super famous, people generally have something negative to say who know them. I remember this story, and I won't name the person's name. My young disciple in our ministry, when I had left New Orleans, he went to a ministry, and this man was awesome. I had read his books. I had admired this man. And I'm not saying all famous people don't love God. I'm just saying I'm just tired of hearing about their mistakes and flaws too, Ellen, because sometimes you just want to hear that people love God even though they're, they're super famous for Jesus. So anyways, this brother, he goes and works for this ministry. And he's right under the brother that wrote all the books. I mean, he's serving the man. He goes on trips with the man. He would do the plays and skits before the brother would come up and preach. And he begins to tell me that there's issues with this man's temper. That when this man comes into the office, like he goes off on like red-faced yelling at the people. To the point where the Bible college director had to then go to the, the man of God and say, look, you're mistreating our people. You've mistreated my wife. You're, you're yelling at us. You're yelling at We can understand if you're frustrated. We can understand if you're not having a good day. But you are full out yelling at us, red-faced in front of everybody. He didn't listen. Then they went to the worship leader who had been with this man for quite some time and said, the Bible says, now come with two or three. We're coming with We want you to come with us. And they went, and the man still didn't listen. And then this whole Bible college ministry that was under this mighty evangelist went all to another location. And my friend watched his hero become like a zero in his mind. And you would never know. And this is one person, I won't say their name. But I'm telling in private, I wouldn't say their name in public, obviously, but I'm not going to say it private because it will do no good to know their name. Listen to me, my friends. It's so sad when that happens. It's sad when when you've looked up to somebody and then you get around them and you see they're not really who they appear to be. And yet you knew they were gifted. And they are gifted. And they get into service. And my brother would say, he gets into a service, he becomes like a woolly little lamb. Tears start coming down his eyes. The Holy Spirit gently starts to move across the congregation. All the people in the congregation are weeping and they're getting saved. It's a powerful move of God. But yet, the character didn't match the gifting. And I'm just reminded of that time and time again. But there's one that I'm just reminded of that's exactly the opposite, that just blessed my heart. Growing up in Indiana, Lester Summerall was like a hometown hero. And many of you need to research Lester Summerall. He wrote so many books, and he started a Christian TV program, and an awesome man of God. And, man, he got saved at 15 years old, called to preach. His dad kicked him out the house. He walked down his road, started his first service in a guy's barn, and he traveled all around the world. He's one of the, he's one of the stories that you hear. God told him to go to, like, Russia, one of these countries. He didn't even know he buys a one-way ticket. He shows up there raising his hands, looking for somebody, going, Hallelujah, Hallelujah, hallelujah. And then somebody says, hallelujah, I'm a Christian brother. The Lord told me you were coming, that somebody was coming off of a boat, and I'm to bring you into my house and we'll reach Russia together. I'm telling you, you need to hear about Lester Summerall. Well, one of, uh, which was his armor bearer, one of the closest men in his ministry, I had the opportunity of getting to know 
and he just talked about the gracious nature of Lester Sumrall. He was a stern man. He fired people all the time. He's one of the men that I was telling you about before that fired people because they weren't excellent in his ministry. And if you were not doing right in the ministry, you were fired. He loved you, but he fired you. That's just the way he was. But he talked about how gentle he was, how he was in person, how he was a joy to be with, how on his plane trips he would write books, and how he would just reach out to people. And I remember this man saying to me if I wanted to come to the conference that they had once a year for Lester Summerall in South Bend. And I went with him, and, you know, I got that backstage pass. So I'm with all the guest speakers and his son, who's now running the ministry, etc. And all of these apostles, man, Apostle George Tadeo with a million members in like a thousand churches in the Portuguese and Portuguese-speaking nations was there. And Sergio Scatellini, the guy from Argentine Revival, based his church out of there. And they're all there. And each one of them are just talking. Lester Summerall died, I think, in the late 80s, early 90s. I saw him preach a couple times. Awesome man of God. Um, they were all just going around the room talking about how this man affected their life. This awesome man of God who took time to just affect their life and bring spiritual change. You see, my friends, the integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by duplicity. Amen? Lesson number 10. <laughs> Humbly serving is the outward display of love. Humbly serving is the outward display of love. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. It is so easy to proclaim your love. It's another thing to display your love. Jesus didn't just come down here and say, hey, guys, guess what? I love you. I love you lots. And that comes from the feeling place. No, Jesus didn't come and just say, I love you guys. You're so great. Jesus displayed his love. He says, no greater love has a man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. You see, in ministry, you can tell people, what you know, but they don't care about how much you know until they know how much you care. I learned this lesson the hard way. This lesson was one of the hardest and still is one of the hardest lessons I've ever learned. To me, serving people is giving them the opportunity to treat you like a servant. It's one thing for me to just serve you. It's another thing for then you to treat me like a servant. How many know that's just another level? And let me just back up and say this before I tell you my personal lesson in this. You see, when people come to a church plant, what they do is they look around and they see what they can do to help. And so when our church was first starting, somebody said, well, I can do the music and I can do this. These are people you don't even know. They would just come for one service, blow in and blow out. And the whole idea was, is they wanted to give me something, but on their terms. They wanted it to be their way. But then when I would say to them, oh, well, thank you for wanting to lead the worship, but what we're doing is kind of like this seven-step book, and you've got to go through that first, and then after that you'll go through this other process, and when you want to be a leader, you'll, you'll do all of that, and then we'll let you serve. They began to leave and say, well, that's not what I want to do. No, I don't want to go that route. And so in their mind, they weren't really coming to serve. They, they used those words, I want to serve in the worship band. No, what they really wanted to do was build their own kingdom. Now, having said that, 
This lesson came to me in that first year of ministry, and it's never left me, but I'll give you some of the first year of ministry examples. Glenn Boom Boom Badonsky and I are leading Wind Warriors Dream. This is after Juan had left. It's just him and I as two SGM students during the summer. And you've got to have him tell this story because he can tell it so much better than I can because he experienced it a lot more intensely than I did. <clears throat> so we have about 10 youth, but we do these out, uh, outdoor park outreaches. So we say let's take them on a summer trip for two days to, to uh, Mississippi. So we plan this trip. Only like two of our guys show up. And we're like, man, we got enough food for like 10 youth. We need to get some more youth. So I get this great idea. Let's go in the neighborhood to where these guys who are in the gangs are at and ask them to come with us. So we show up there out of love, out of just, just love and sincerity and stupidity. We go there and we say, hey, guys, do you want to come on a trip with us to Wisconsin? And they're like high and crazy and they don't care. So like eight of them all get in the van with us and start the road trip from hell. So this is, like I tell you, Glenn will tell it to you so much better than this. Just ask Glenn to tell you about our first trip to camp with the Plumyra gang, the Plumyra gang. Ask him about the Plumyra gang. And then after he gets that shocked look and like post-traumatic syndrome off of his face, he'll then tell you and make, make you laugh. Needless to say, they curse the whole time. We're trying to deal with it. We then get to the place. They don't want to eat the food that we have. Then, when I wasn't around, some, I was doing something else, they begin to get into a wrestling match with Glenn because Glenn likes to wrestle. Well, in this wrestling match, Glenn gets stabbed with a pencil. One of them, boom, puts a pencil in him. Like that's how much disrespect they have. Then, one of the younger gang members, I don't know what it was. I think it was this God giving us something to laugh about. He freaks out because he's in the middle of the woods. He actually starts to cry and wants to go back home. So here, one, some of them are stabbing us, and the other one is crying, saying he wants to go back home. Like the 14-year-old little wannabe gang member, he starts crying, which he ended up becoming a crazy one himself. Uh, his name was like Pooh Bear, so that was his name, but he was like little, little Pooh. So Pooh starts crying. You know what I'm saying in the hood. Come on, anybody been in the hood? You know those names. And like, that's just what it is. You're always going to call him Pooh now. So anyway, so little Pooh Bear, he, little Pooh Bear, Yogi Bear. No, his name was Yogi Bear. Yogi Bear or Pooh Bear? I can't remember. Yogi. Yeah, his name was Yogi. That was it. I'm sorry. So Yogi, Yogi Bear, Yogi starts crying, so we got to take him up. So I say to Glenn, which is three hours away, so Glenn, you take Yogi home. As he's taking Yogi home, he brought one of the other guys with him to keep him company. I guess this guy berated him the whole time. And so the long story short is that we learned we had to serve. We had to serve when people treated us like servants. And I can tell you, going into projects, it was like reverse slavery. It was like all that happened in the South, all that the white man had did to them, they were now going to take out on me. I am so serious. I would come out, come here, white boy, come here. You gave me, you gave me a, a lucky charm. I don't want no lucky charms. I'm on fruity pebbles. Then you gave fruity pebbles to this person. Give me some fruity pebbles, white boy. And I would have to go over there, yes, them. And I would go over to the truck. I'm like getting them fruity pebbles. Like, you do, white boy. All right, you come back next time and bring me some groceries. 
I'm telling you, working in the projects, I became like a slave to the people, just like serving them. How may I help you, man? I am here, you know what I'm saying, to serve you. Picking up people for rides. How many have ever done transportation ministry? How many know the greatest display of love is serving the people you're picking up? Oh, Jesus, how many times do you just want to leave them there? Man, I just remember driving the bus and people not being ready. And I have like a 40-person bus packed to the gills. And then I'm talking to like, Janiqua, come on, girl. I'm, I, where are you? I'm dealing with my hair, Panther. Give me five more minutes. And I'm just like out here with the bus, 40 people in the bus, waiting for Shaniqua to come out there. Y'all looking at me crazy. Y'all, y'all don't even know. I ain't even telling the half. You guys have no idea where I've been and what I've been through. I've been through some stuff. Never going back. I'm telling you, man, until you work in the projects, you don't know nothing about serving people, man. I, man, let me tell you something. I had an old woman that would wet herself on the bus. I would clean her on the bus. I would clean up her mess. I had our woman leaders help her out. I'm telling you, I've, I've had, I had a handicapped person. There was one story, I'll just tell you this. This is somewhat funny and somewhat sad. There was one brother I took off the streets. I brought in over 30 homeless people into my house. That's, yeah, I'll keep you here all day. What time do we have? Okay, listen, I took this one man, I won't even say his name, off the streets into my house. And there started to be this smell in my house. And he was a little bit obese. And it was just this disgusting smell. And so I had one of these North Central, you know, one of these, you know, wet behind the ear guys in ministry from Minnesota, you know. And I said, dude, you got to smell my house out. Find where this thing out is. So I literally put him on this, like, thing like a dog. So he's walking around. I said, brother, smell that corner, man. Smell under the sink. Smell in the shower. Where is this smell coming from? And then, like, he's like, man, I don't know what it is. I'm like, smell him. And so my dude walks over to him and starts smelling him. Smells up and down his body. Seriously, listen. Smells up and down. And goes to his leg. Listen, now this is where it gets a little sad. This man had diabetes and something was happening in his legs. I don't know how that works. But he had an open sore on his leg. And it was about the size of like a dollar, you know, like a coin, like a dollar coin, a silver dollar. And it was into his flesh like deep, man. And it was oozing pots. You know what we had to do? We had to bring that dude to the hospital and help change his bandages and take care of him. That's what it was like, man. Serving people. That's what I had to learn in my head. Like, I just could, I couldn't comprehend that. Like, how could you not tell us that you had a, like a cancerous sore on your body? But he didn't, he was embarrassed. So we had to serve him. I mean, I'm reminded of story after story, serving people, serving people. Let me tell you one more since I'm talking about what we did with the homeless ministry. There was this other man that uh, his, his name was, oh, Lord, don't let me forget his name. I wrote all their names at the beginning of my Bible, man. I don't want to forget this brother's name. Oh, it'll take me too long, but, oh, he's in my heart. Lord, you know, please forgive me. Okay, so I go and meet this guy, and it's, he's like 19 years old. He's living with his dad, and they both do drugs together. Okay, this is the story that I always tell. Remember, he gets out of jail. He doesn't call me and he dies. But I'm going to tell it for everybody. But here's the point. This brother was so just, man, wrecked on drugs. 
that I offered him. I said, man, if you live for Jesus, I'll take you out of here right now in this drug house, and I'll bring you into my house. And he said, okay, I'll live, I'll, you know, I'm going to live for Jesus. So I bring him into my house, man, and he is doing good, man. He's living for the Lord. Well, what begins to happen is <clears throat> we find out that he has warrants, and he has all of these other uh, things with the law that he has to take care of. So we bring him to there, and we say, brother, do your time, and then we'll take care of you when you come out. Long story short, he calls me while he's in the jail. I, I always take his collect calls. We're always talking about Jesus. He's serving his time. He's going to get back out and come and stay with me. Well, I got the day circled, and the day comes and goes, and I don't hear from him. And we know something is up. So about a week later, I'm driving on the street, and I see him, man. And I'm like, dude, what's up, man? You need to come back to the house and get your life right. But he's drinking beer. He's partying with his dad. He's doing drugs again. And I'm like, man, come on. And I'm like, trying, I'm like begging this guy. I'm like trying to serve him. I'm like, come on, man. You need to come back to the house. I'm going to take care of you. He says, no, Pastor, I'll come next a week or I'll come tomorrow. Well, weeks go by. I don't hear from him. The next time I see him, I see his face on a T-shirt. Because in the, in, the, in the projects, when you die, they put your face on a T-shirt and they tell some story about you on that T-shirt. You know, rest in peace, gone but not forgotten, etc. And so... Man, I asked the person wearing the T-shirt, what happened to him? And they say the day, and I think it was like that night or the next day after I saw him, he was out gambling, and when he was gambling, he, 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 he lost, and he beat up this kid that took his money from him when he was losing, and then the kid went home, got a gun, and executed him. But that was serving him. I was serving him, bringing him into my house. See, are you willing to serve people? Are you willing to clean up the urine on your bus seat after the old lady went on herself? Are you willing to stand out in front of their house while the woman is still getting ready when you got all these other things to do? Are you willing to bring in the homeless and the hurting and take care of them even though they smell? Are you willing to serve people even though they don't know what's good for themselves and they reject you and they say horrible things about you? Are you still willing to serve them? Jesus came and displayed his love for us by dying on a cross. We didn't give him a hug, pat him on the back and say, this is how much we love you. We crucified him and he allowed us to crucify him. And he said, this is love. I'm laying down my life for the ones who are crucifying me. You've got to learn that lesson in ministry. Humbly serving is the true outward sign of love. That if you truly love the people in your church, you will serve them. And just as a side note, I don't know what experiences you're going to have. But as I began to learn the, to love the unlovable, I found that loving people like you and SUM and Christians were so much easier. And I think a lot of times when I talk to people who are in the church and they're so frustrated with the Christians in their church, they need to go back out in the homeless ministry a little bit. They need to get back out to the streets. And that's why I feel evangelism is so important because when you realize what it took just to get one soul in the church, you're so happy that they're there now. Amen. Like you'll pick them up. You'll take care of them. Hey, man, I was like happy when I finally had somebody like Joe Miles who was like, Pastor, do a Bible study with me. Like, I was like, dude, he was like the Pope to me. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, who paid you to say that? Because it, like, blessed me so much. And that's why I think if you ever lose your heart for the congregation that you're pastoring, go back out to the streets. Go back out to Mardi Gras and realize what it took for one person to come out and get saved. Amen? Lesson 11. The family is the greatest earthly gift from God. Ephesians 5, 31 through 32. For this reason, oh, hold on. 
For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound ministry, but I am talking about Christ and the church. When it came to all of the examples that Christ could use to compare his relationship to and with, he uses the bride of Christ of marriage. He uses the example of a family. Why? He could have used the puppy with the dog. Now he's illustrated with himself being like a mother hen. But what does he identify ultimately himself with? A father and a son, and a son has a bride. And the bride is the church, his creation. Why? Because when God first created us, he created us to be fruitful and multiply. Now do you understand why the devil attacks the family so much? Now do you know why that every uh, society that breaks down from the husband and wife raising children eventually corrupts and falls apart. That whenever a society turns its back on the, va- uh, the values, family values, the culture demises. That's why today, when I'm talking about the inner city and the projects, 80% of them don't even grow up with their father. And then you study what happens in fatherless homes. Without a father figure there, you're more likely to drop out of school. You're more likely to commit crimes. You're more likely to have mental illnesses. You're more likely to go through life and hurt others. Why? Because you never had a father figure. Is that something that you talk about on Oprah Winfrey only? Is that something that, oh, I didn't have a good dad? No, it's biblical. If you don't have a father figure, if you don't have a godly mother and father figure, you're going to grow up with something lacking. Now you might say, well, my mom did the best she could. Well, God bless her, and I'm so glad she did. And yes, God gave her help to do that. But listen, God's ultimate, ultimate example is what? Mother and father and child. Mother, father, and child. And I learned that. I learned that my family loved me. That my mother and father, because they were Christians, they loved me and they gave me the greatest example when I was growing up of what a godly family was. And I'm so fortunate for that. And I'm proud of that. And some of you, maybe you didn't have that, but it starts with you now. Because now my wife and I are married and we have children. And that to me is the most precious thing I've ever been given. And I want to be for Bethany and Hannah, the greatest father I can ever be. And I want Nancy to be the greatest mother she can be. And for all you single people, whatever position in life you're in right now, that needs to be your goal. Not looking in the past, not looking to the things of the past, but looking in the future going, you know what? The one I marry will be a godly person. The children we have, we will raise in a godly home. And we will bring peace to our part of this earth. By lifting up the name of Jesus. There's nothing like going into a godly home and feeling the peace of God. Feeling the tranquility that everything is okay. You don't have to worry about a fight erupting between the husband and wife. You don't have to worry about the kid beating up the sister. That might happen in in a little bit, but the godly family will break it up. Amen? Because a godly family is not perfect. But let me just say this. When I learned this lesson, it was when I started my first family. And I began to realize there's nothing that I wouldn't do for Hannah. There's nothing that I wouldn't do for Bethany. And God sees us that same way. So at the end of the day, I may take off the pastor hat. I'll set down the microphone. But I'm always a father to Bethany. 
I'm always a husband to Nancy. People may come in out of this church. They may say, you were a father figure. You were a mentor to me. And they may come in in and out of my life. But I will always be in the lives of my children. You see, you have to understand that you don't let ministry take the place of your family. If you gain the whole world and yet lose your family, you've lost it all, my opinion. If you've won soul after soul after soul and you traveled all around the world and yet your family doesn't love God, yet your family doesn't serve God, you've missed something. I've looked at PKs and that's what all of you are going to have, pastors, kids, MKs, missionary kids. And I've looked at them and the tragedies that they've gone through. And, and I don't blame them. In one sense, that's their responsibility now if, they, if they're going to live for God and they can't blame their family. But in one sense, I don't blame their hurt. Because dad was not the same dad he was in the pulpit at home with mom. There's a story that I personally experienced. I'll never forget it. And remember when I told you about the man who fell that came and preached in our church and then on that trip to New Orleans to visit my, uh, my, our ministry, he went out and hooked up with his old high school sweetheart? Well, there was a man that did that. Well, what comes to my mind, one of the reasons why that happened is that he never had a Sabbath day with his family. And he never appreciated what God gave him. And I remember being with him, and he had a, has, and, and, and had, they restored him back to his ministry. But he had a great urban ministry. And I went down there to be with him. And he had like 15 buses that would go out to all of the homeless, all of the hurting. And he would bring them into the church. And he had a humongous facility. He would feed them all hundreds and hundreds of people. He had called me down to preach in his tech crusade. And it was just awesome. And things were going on. And I remember I said, brother, I just want to drive with you on your bus route. And so he took me downtown to his city. We were driving around and talking. And he was telling me, man, if Bobo over here here, needs a place to stay, and because and, and, I said, do you have a homeless shelter? And he said, no, we don't have that. We always try to work with the shelters, but if they really don't feel comfortable there, I'll let them sleep on my front lawn. And I'm like, really? And he's like, yeah, I'll just let them sleep on my front lawn. Sometimes my neighbors don't like it, but I'll tell them to sleep in the back. So he just allowed people to sleep on his front lawn. He just took in the homeless. I mean, always doing ministry, and we were just hanging out. We were just laughing. I mean, having a good time, and I just remember asking him, I said, so when's your day off, man, and what do you do? He said, day off? I don't have a day off. God don't give me a day off. I'll rest when I get to heaven. Let me tell you something. That is rebellion towards God and His commands. And that is disrespect and dishonor towards your family. I have never honored nor respected anyone who has told me they're that busy. They may impress somebody else. Just like I told you when somebody gets off of that 80-day fast and they tell you, I just got off an 80-day fast and I met the Apostle Paul and I was up there with Elijah. You know where I told you to go? (laughs) Remember I told you to do that to him? (laughs) You did that? Wow. Sign my Bible. (laughs) You know what? You know what? You know what you need? To say to the one who says, man, I'm so busy, I don't have a day off. You know what you need to look at him and just say, not impressed. Not impressed. That was supposed to impress me. You're not, I'm not impressed by that. I'm, I'm so busy, I don't have time with my family. I'm so busy that I didn't get to do this, this, and this. I had to cancel my vacation. I didn't get to, you know, I didn't take my wife out for her anniversary. Oh, I'm so spiritual. Oh, I know what it's like to stay here till four in the morning. Not impressed. Because... 
When you lose your family, in my mind, you lost it all. That's why I was always impressed with Brother Anthony, Papa Freeman, Bishop, and his family, because no matter what was going on, he always made time for dinner at his house. And no matter what was going on, you could always see him take his vacations in the winter and that his children knew that he was always there. And no matter how many of us guests would be in his house, he would take time to correct his children. God bless you, Justice, for taking a licking and keep on ticking. He would correct his children in front of us, and he would make time to laugh with his children in front of us, doing devotions with his family. My friends, never forget about your family. I am obligated to you in a sense. And there is a great calling and there is a great obligation that I have to you. But it is incomparable to the obligation I have to my wife and children. It is the greatest obligation. And that is why in our ministry, we have always given people two cards. And it's the trump card, like when you're playing a game and you pull it out and this trumps everything else, like Uno and... uh, uh, Ricky and I were playing it in India, and it's the, the one that resets everything or the one that lets you, you, you throw it down the wild card, and you get to choose the color. It, it becomes the color that you want it to be, and then you choose, choose the color. Okay, it's like that trump card. Everybody knows this. You have two cards. You have the family card, and you have the sick card. Anytime you say, I'm sick, that's what you need to do is go home and get well. We don't hold you here. We don't make you stay when you're sick. Nobody is going to tell you you have to come in when you're sick. And it's not just because you'll get other people sick. It's because we all know, that especially my wife and I, the only way you get better is if you rest. That's why I've helped the whooping cough girl. Somebody had to tell her to finally get rid of the whooping cough and go to the doctor. That's why we had to send Leelani home. You know, uh, two days ago, whatever, last week as she was sick, she came in here. Were you throwing up or something? They told me. You still can't. God, it's, like, it's like I'm telling you, sometimes you've got to tell people that. Because in ministry, you'll think, I'm not serving God. And then the other one is the family card. And somebody says, I have a family emergency. You can go. You can do whatever you have to do. Now, we ask, obviously, that when you plan your family trips and vacations, you give us a two-week notice. But your family emergency, it's family. And we've had that so many times when Ish has had, you know, uh, Johnny or when his wife had the miscarriage or in our church when, uh, you know, somebody's family member died and they had to go be there. It's just that's the family card. And I expect to use that in my family. You know, if I couldn't make it to the anniversary because of which we had this last Sunday celebrating five years, if I couldn't make it because my wife needed me, how many know there's no condo bondo? Look at your neighbor and say no condo bondo. That's one phrase that you need to make your best friend in life. There is no bondage or condemnation in Christ Jesus. Put your family first, man of God. Woman of God, put your family first. Now, if you become so introspective where it's like, why aren't you going witnessing? My family's my ministry. Why aren't you going to India? Because I've got to protect my family. If you start doing that, we'll let you know you ain't serving God because the Bible says unless you hate your mother, father, brother, and all that, you can't serve him. Amen? So we'll help you balance that scripture out a little bit. Amen? Well, I can't do this outreach because we have our 75th, you know, anniversary. Okay, you tell them you'll be fine. You love them. You're still a family member, but you come into the outreach, okay? We're not talking about people who just organized 500 family events. There were some people that come to the church. It's like every day there was a family function. It's like, dear Lord. I mean, God bless you and your family, but can we do something for God today, okay? So, yes, there's a balance. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about... It's you and your family. 
Like every day, here's me give you the rule. Every day, try to make one to three hours of family time. Once a week, make a day. So once a day, make one to three hours of family time. Once a week, give a day. Once every two to three months, make a weekend. Just us. We're going to go out. Pastors, be creative. Make a Friday and Saturday. Those who are having their ministries on the weekend, use a Tuesday and a Wednesday. Okay? Every two to three months, take a weekend with your family. And then every six months, take five to seven days. So every year, you're taking about two weeks. Just with your family. Go somewhere. Take a summer vacation. Take a winter vacation. When you come home, spend time with your family. Hang out with them. Hour to three hours. Every so often, do something with a couple days with them. Let them know, like, hey, you got my attention for two straight days. We're going to do this, and then spend the night, and then we're going to do this. Amen? Because it's the greatest gift. You'll learn that when you get a family. God loves me is the last lesson. (laughs) The last lesson. Lesson 12 is God loves me. How many know he loves you too? Romans 8, 38 through 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Somebody say, God loves me. Amen. At the end of the day, when I failed, when I worked hard and I messed up, when my wife and I got into arguments, when I felt like quitting, when people mistreated me, when I had lots of money and when I had no money, I realized that God loved me and that he loves me just as much as he loves the homeless person we're trying to reach. I know that when I made mistakes in ministry, I began to say, well, I should know better. You know, to whom much is given, much is required. And you can play that out in your head to the point where every little mistake you make, the devil's just picking at you. You see, you're not really called to ministry. You're not really good enough. You're not really like everybody else that preaches because you wouldn't have these problems in your life. They don't have these problems in their life, and you have these problems. So you might as well just quit and don't embarrass yourself or embarrass God. I'm telling you, the devil used to beat me up with that and still tries to. And I remember... When I was on a sabbatical, just resting between ministries here in Chicago, and I was just meditating on that broken record of my mistakes and what I could have done differently, and oh, why am I in this position and feeling sorry for myself, God told me to go out and minister to the homeless. And when I went out there and ministered, God said to me, Joe, do I love that homeless man? And I was like, yeah, you love him. Has he messed up in the past? Has he spent years doing gross and disgusting things? Yes. Do I still love him? Yes. Can I forgive him? Yes. Can I save him? Yes. Then do I still love you? And the way I looked at it was this. If I believe that God could save this homeless man, he become a Christian and serve God, then become a pastor. If he made a mistake, would God ever stop loving him? No. But somehow in my mind, I wasn't worthy of that love anymore. That I didn't have that love in my life. And you know why? It was because of fear and doubt and unbelief. One of the most firm foundations you need to establish in your life is that God loves me. If there's four people that show up at church, God loves me. It didn't matter if there was a thousand. God loves you. He is proud of you. 
Do you know my word to pastors when I pray for them? It's prophetic in the sense God gave it to me, and I say it when I sense it, but I've said it many times. You know what it is? And, and, and without fail, and I don't look for tears to confirm the blessing of God on it, but I'm just telling you, without fail, it just, it just shatters hearts. You know what it is? I'll pray for them, and I'll say, God says, well done, my good and faithful servant. And you'll just see, just boom. It doesn't matter if they've been in the ministry for one day or for ten years. When God tells me to release that word on them, I'll just put my hand on them, and I'll just say, God says, well done. He says, well done. You'll just see tears just stream down their face. You know why? Because they never think they've done it good enough. Because right after they had their outreach, they sit down with their team. How can we have done it better? What can we have done to get more people? Then they go on to the next outreach. Then they go on to the next thing. And then they feel a disappointment. And then somebody leaves their church. And they're always feeling like there's a goal in front of them, like a carrot. And they're trying to catch up and get it, but they never get it. You need to learn how to take every day for what it is and know every day if you've done your best, if you serve God, and when you did mess up, you repented. He says, good job. He says, well done. He says, I love you. There are so many times in ministry where you will become your worst critic. You will beat yourself up. You will tell yourself all of the, you will disqualify yourself. You will put down your own ministry. You can consider yourself a failure. That you're just not good enough. In those days, in those times, my friends, you need to know God loves you. One of the greatest examples of this in my life, other than that time I've told you about the homeless person, is when I was leaving New Orleans after I had given the church to another man, and I just, oh, I can't even put it to you. I thought about all the years of ministry, and it just felt like now it was all wasted. I mean, I, I mean, those of you who have felt failure before, I mean, that's just what it was, the, the feeling of failure. And if you guys, and none of you technically have, so I don't want to pull the I've been there and you haven't card, but in one sense I really have. I mean, four years, five altogether if you consider when Warriors Dream. And just all this ministry, all these dreams, all these talks with men like Steve Wilkes who gave money, businessmen like George Bass, and all of these dreams, 30 plus interns from around the nation, and all of these people I have I promised, and people in the community, thousands I've told, I'm your pastor, I'm here, I will die with you, I will preach till Jesus comes back. <clears throat> and now leaving, and knowing it's over, and knowing that the good, the bad, the ugly, it's now in the past. It's there. It's over. I mean, it crushed me. I cried. And I cried, and I cried. And I remember saying, God, if you don't want me to leave this city, then stop me from leaving. And I had got a U-Haul. And that U-Haul broke down for three days straight. <laughs> and that U-Haul broke down. I'm just like, God, am I not getting the message? But it was, that was just a, a, a cry of pity. It wasn't really, I knew I was supposed to go. And that three-day drive to Chicago by myself, the Lord just began to heal me. And I remember, because I wasn't totally healed, I remember coming to my pastor's office, and God bless him, he's an awesome man of God, but I just don't think at that time he understood what I was going through. So nothing against him. Don't hear it as a slight against him. But I would come into his office, and I would say, I feel like going back. 
And I'm telling you, I, I've never been to war, obviously. I've never been in the army. And, and I can't say this is ex, as extreme as that because I don't know. And I, I honor our soldiers. But you know how they say these guys do a tour? Then they say, like some of their other guys are doing a tour, and they say, I've got to go back. I've got to go back. I can't, I can't leave my men going back on tour in the military without me. That's exactly what it felt like. I remember sitting in his office, being paid this great salary, having a ministry exploding, and it's like, but I left my heart in New Orleans. I think I need to go back. And he would just tell me, man, just get over it, man. And, it, and I, I, like I said, it doesn't mean he didn't love God or he wasn't. Maybe he was just something I needed to hear. I don't know, but it was like not the right time to hear those things. I mean, it just hurt me so. It's like, get over it. How can I get over it? I left everything there. What also did I leave there that I wasn't supposed to leave? I left my value there. In my mind, if I wasn't the pastor of Metro Praise New Orleans, if I wasn't that guy bringing in 30 homeless people, if that wasn't my identity, catch this, that God couldn't love me. You cannot let the situations dictate your identity for your future, nor for the love of God. You have to know He loves you despite what you're going through. Despite what you think you're supposed to have. Well, I should have this. I should be this far in ministry. There should be this much success in my life. No. He loves you because God is love. Would you stand up with me? Now that it's for those of you who say, Pastor, we never hear your stories when you talk about Zechariah. There you go. There's all my stories. All the st- So now whenever you hear a sermon illustration, you'll be like, oh, I've heard that one. You see, Griselda, I heard her preach one time. She loves to tell stories. I'm not really a storyteller. I don't tell a lot of stories. You know that. I will preach the whole Bible and maybe just tell you one story. But something in my heart, when we came to this five-year um, time in our church, the Lord wanted me to take time to just tell you some stories. And then when I did it on Sunday morning, uh, I really felt the Lord say, give it to the Bible college students so that you guys could just hear just a wide variety of stories. I mean, you've heard stories about me having a peer that was a homosexual to a pastor falling into adultery to me hanging out with Lester Summerall's peeps to, you know, church planning overseas to being afraid to go to India. I mean, you've heard every story, every game. I mean, I, I think I've just laid it all bare. You know what I'm saying? I think I'm a little embarrassed right now. Like I just got out the shower and somebody came in like I got a towel. I'm like, what are you guys calling me? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, whoop. You know, you know what I'm saying? I got that feeling right now. So, like, I'm exposed. Here I am. All of me. So, obviously, the Bible is our guide for living. This is the ultimate guide. But I just wanted to give some examples of how I have tried to live this out. Because you now are getting those examples. Everything you're developing now will be part of your story. Everything will be a part of what you share and what you tell others. Leilani, would you just come? We're going to pray right now. Just want to leave you with those last words about God loving you. I'm sure we've all dealt with it before. I just want you to take these next few moments to let the Lord know. Confess it to Him. I know you love me. You know, when I grab Bethany, I say, I love you, I love you, I love you. 
But I also like to ask the question, do you know that I love you? You see, we like that, don't we? When you're in love with somebody, do you know that I love you? And when they say yes, there's a sense of that satisfaction, like, good, you know that I love you. Well, it's the same thing with the Lord. He wants to know, do you know that He loves you? Do you know it? Do you know it? Is that going to be the foundation of your ministry? You're not doing ministry out of the fear of man. You're not doing ministry out of condemnation and guilt. You're not doing ministry because of fear and you're going to let people down and bitterness. You're doing ministry out of your love for God. Why did Peter want to hang out with Jesus? Because he loved Jesus. Why did he love Jesus? Because Jesus first loved him. Why do you want to spend time with Yogi in Mississippi after you just got stabbed with a pencil? Because you love him. That's why Glenn loved Noah. You know, he loved him. What are you going to do? Let God know you love him today. And love others like the way he loved you. Amen. Let's just meditate on that and close it today. Hallelujah, Jesus. Thank you for your love. God, even though I don't feel it sometimes, even though I don't understand how you could, Lord, I believe today you love me. I believe it. You love me. I remember being in Bible college after messing up on a test or being so tired I was sleeping in class that God would give me an illustration of my father holding me as a child or me seeing a picture of that and God would say, that's the way I love you. How much? That much. If you were to ask God, how much do you love me? He would point to the cross and say, that much. That much. For me, Jesus, you did that for me. I did it for you. For me, yes. Sometimes you don't believe it's for you. You'll preach the cross and it will become numb for you. Sometimes you've got to come back and say, Lord, was that for me? Is there room at the cross for me? And he says, yes. Come. Come, all who are weary. All who are heavy with burdens and weighed down. Learn from me. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my load is light. You know the story that I get in my mind is that story of Zacchaeus climbing the old sycamore tree. There he is, little old Zacchaeus. If I can just take a look at him, it will be enough. Jesus passes by sees his heart, his childlike faith, and says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. And you could just kind of hear the heart of Zacchaeus say back, Me? You're choosing me? Jesus, you have all these people to be with. And you want to be with me? Come on, Billy Graham, Reinhard Bonk, you're awesome men of God, but he's looking at you today saying, Can I come to your house? Jonathan, do you want to meet me in the prayer closet? 
Lauren, do you want to take a walk with me? And let's spend the afternoon together. Come on, Jesus, we love you today. You said in your word, if we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. Jesus, we're coming your way. And we won't let guilt or condemnation keep us from drawing nearer to your side. Just worship Him right now in your own words. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Lord. We love you. We love you. Oh, we love you, Lord. We love you. We love you. We love you. stepfather that we might have grown up with or seen in the movies who's only happy when we win the game and angry when we miss the touchdown pass or when we strike out. You're not that stepfather that loves us when we really do good in ministry but doesn't want to be around us when we mess up. That's not who you are. You are the father of the fatherless. You are the helper of the oppressed. You are the friend that sticks closer than a brother. And when all hell breaks loose and everything fails, you never leave and your love never fails. Your love never fails. Jesus, let your love capture our hearts again today. Capture us again, oh God. Let our motivation be because we're in love with you. Why do we pursue ministry with a passion the way we do? Because you love us and we love you. Why do we take the sufferings and the persecution and the afflictions of this world? Because you love us and we love you. Oh God. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. I couldn't understand how He could love me through this. It surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Lord, we want to know You. And we want to love You more than we ever have before. Be with us this week. 
Let us focus back on what really matters and give us the strength to fight 10,000 men and to scale a city wall and to conquer nations in your name. In Jesus' name. And everybody said.